Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Whiskey Web and Whatnot with your hosts, myself, Charles William Carpenter III, and Robbie the Wagner. Our guest today... Wagner, 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 Wagner. I have to talk over you like you do to me every time. Yeah, this is what it really was. It was all a ploy. All righty. Who's our guest today? Oh, yes. Lucia Cherchi. That's how I always say it. Is that right? It's Searchy. Searchy. like to find me. I'm to go on a little Searchy. Oh, no. I like it. I wish I would have asked that a long time ago or even before we started to record. No, you're right. It's all right. In Italian, it's probably like Cherche or something. All right. So... Feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, so I'm Lucia Searchy. I'm a developer advocate at Confluent. And fun fact about myself, I was an elementary school teacher for four years before I got into coding. And yeah, that's me. We can talk about Confluent and Kafka probably a little bit later on past the whiskey segment. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely get into that because I do think it's an interesting, I like origin stories. And also I think it's an interesting like combination of a very unique skill set to become a developer advocate and in developer relations in, in general. I always think that path is a little different and, and weird for some people, but for you, knowing that bit of information, it seems like, oh yeah, that's a natural blend, of course. Yeah, there's actually a lot of us former teachers in developer advocacy, you'd be surprised. Huh. I can think of three or four off the top of my head. Yeah, well, that makes total sense. That's why they don't ask Robbie to do it. <laughs> Yeah, people don't like me. I can't teach children. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, since I did the intro, Robbie, I think you should introduce this bottle of whiskey. All right. Coming in blind here, too. But we have barrel. I know that. Mm -hmm. It is bourbon. It is batch number 32. It is cast strength. It's distilled and aged in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana, apparently. Selection of five, six, seven, and 10-year-old barrels aged in American white oak bottled in Kentucky and let's see if our proofs are the same let's see yeah I'm 115.34 115.34 oh they're usually not exactly the same but because they're the same batch that's why oh right and they came from the same company so it's more apt to so sometimes we have to like buy them from separate places because he's in this little antiquated state called Virginia and there's a lot of extra laws for some reason yeah it's a commonwealth actually yeah okay I feel like Arizona has really like the least liquor laws on the planet. Absolutely. In the US at least. Yes. Yeah. Well, this bourbon's been places. Yes. Well, that is their thing. The barrel company are really big uh -huh. on uh, blending different things together, doing some different aging processes. Basically, every every batch is supposed to be unique. All right. So, unfortunately, we learned today that Lucia cannot join us in the tasting. So, she will join us in the smelling and... I don't know, feedback on that. What do you smell? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm expecting. So, rare. But I always think an important part of tasting is the smelling. So, let's see what I can pick up on anything here. Yeah. Is it? I'm getting honey. Okay. I don't think there's any wrong answers. So, whiskey. I feel like with bourbon and whiskey, you can say things like band aid. People are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's probably one of the more unique. Uh, yeah. A Band-Aid from 1983, very distinctly rubber and old glue and stickiness. I'm not sure. I don't know if I'd want to drink that, though. <laughs> I do get a little bit of the, like a honeysuckle, though, like maybe floral honey. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I'm getting like a bag of almonds, maybe like some cinnamony almonds, like something, some kind of flavor. Now that you're saying that, that's the other thing about tastings is that whenever someone mentions it, then it 
you could like imagine yeah, <laughs> what they said. Like, oh, now yeah. I get it. Yes, because yeah. you put that in my head. Yeah, most of the descriptors I think are kind of made up and subjective. Mm -hmm. It's hard for my version of almonds might not be Robbie's version of almonds, so on and so forth. And I'm like, almonds, those are clearly walnuts. <laughs> well, now that I taste it a little bit, well, I get some leathery bits in there. It definitely has more of a bitter flavor than what I smelled. Oh, yeah. Little heat, little cinnamon on the finish. A little though. harsh. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, interesting. So, I had uh, one of the things I got this water for, for obviously, just so you can have a sip of water if you need it or whatever, clear your throat. But also, adding a few drops of water can change the flavor of whiskey. Right. So, later, when you're able to have this, it's always nice to, like, try it as is, especially, like, cast strength and really strong one like that. It's nice to have it as is, and then nice to add just a few drops, let that open it up, add a little oxygen there, and then see if it changes things. It's almost like getting to try two different whiskeys. So is that a reaction between the H2O and then the whatever's in the alcohol releasing oxygen? Were you the first one to try and call me out on that? So I'm going to say yes. <laughs> there, we yeah. Go. Yeah. there we go. That sounds scientific, yeah. It does, yes. I learned that trick from like a fancy whiskey bar in D.C. where like when they would bring you a pour, they would also like... If you wanted, you can have some cubes on the side and they would bring you like a little dropper so that right. you could do that as well. And I was like, this is cool. All I know, it does change it. Yeah. I'm going to say it totally it's does. a chemical reaction for sure. Yeah. All right. So now we go on to the ratings. Obviously, Lucia, you'll, your rating will be a while down the line. Yeah. Let's just give it like a 7.9. Love it. It's like the best <laughs> thing you've ever smelled almost yeah. in the whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, at least yeah. while I'm pregnant. Yeah, one of the best things I've ever smelled. <laughs> you have to smell it periodically and see if it changes for you as hormones develop. And oh, all it, that. it yes. certainly will. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Rob? So I'm biased because of Barrel being so fantastic at everything. I'm going to say this one is not as fantastic as their other very fantastic ones. So I'm going to give this one a five. Yeah, I was kind of a little back and forth there. I will be interested to see like how this one opens up over time or something. But uh, right off the bat, it's a little bit harsh. It had a really nice smell, but the flavors initially are like, uh, I don't know. This is uh, it's it's a little too cinnamony, burny, leathery for me right off the bat. So I'm probably in a five two. But you know, and that's just really comparing them to themselves because they've had a lot of other oh, really yeah. fantastic bottles. Yeah, if you're comparing it to other stuff, every barrel is like at least a seven. Yeah. Like they do really good stuff. Right. So technical things. Do we go right into hot takes or do we want to talk about other stuff? I never know what we do on this podcast. We do what we want. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think I think we do hot takes first. Just some hot takes. Yeah. We like to ask some regular questions that we see people argue about on Twitter. Sure. And just get people's normal opinion, not when they're behind the veil of the doge now. Right, yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Sounds good. I'll start with the first one because it's the one I remember and I can't reach my laptop to look at notes. Get rebase or get merge? Great question. I prefer get merge because the last time I was working on like an NPM project, when you do get merge, it kind of collates the different commits together nicely so that you can see if you look at the history on NPM, like what was added with each of the commits. That's my preference. I know we have rebase because then you can save all of the commits when you merge it back into the history. But, right, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think there's really a right answer. The thing that I dislike about merge is that you get that one that says merge in it. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's the only thing I like. Whether you like squashing or not, I, I think is another thing. But like if you're rebasing and still really kind of 
treating it as a merge and merging everything in, then you get like that everything atomic and not that one. Like I merged this. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe I'm weird, but I, I think that it depends on when you're using it. I, if you're updating your branch from master, I like rebase. I don't like the whole merge in from master kind of thing for updating the branch. Otherwise, I like merge when you're actually just merging in your code and into the main branch. Squash and merge is kind of nice if you've got a messy team who likes to save all the time. But otherwise, if you have like a set of rules that your team follows that makes sense to everyone in that, then you know that's a good way to go too. Right. I think it's about remembering who's going to be reading it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. <laughs> and that can help you make your decision. Right. Yeah. Because like if, if you're talking about like a private production application versus an NPM package, it's a vastly different audience there. And and what you need to be clear, like for your change logs and things like that, is probably pretty different. Yeah, it definitely depends. Yeah. 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 So I don't know how into CSS you are, but Tailwind or vanilla CSS? So I am not enough into it to have a strongly held opinion there. Okay. Trying to think it through. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've used both, but lightly. So I think their prop is probably one of those things where it's like, well, what are you using it for? Indeed. Yeah. What's your opinion? Chuck would say no styles ever would be his answer. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> want to do any of that stuff anymore. I've, well, before we jumped on how you were saying, like the you know ba- like more just base skills, not hotness, all that kind of stuff. I think for a small project, maybe personal project or something, just keep it as simple as possible for your users. I don't mind Tailwind when I'm like basically looking at their UI component library and just want to quickly put something together that doesn't look like material UI or something like that. I can I can get on board with that. But in general, yeah, I wanna I wanna avoid those things altogether. Either way, not <laughs> my choice is someone else do it. Yeah, that's fair. Mm-hmm. And what do you got for another one? Or we can move on to regular topics. I thought we had more, but maybe you didn't copy over the most recent ones. But the only one we have left here is for TypeScript inferred types or explicit types? I have not used enough TypeScript. I just made my first project that I actually published out with it. I mean, I've used it like in other code bases at work and stuff, but yeah, and I'm pretty sure I used very explicit types (laughs) in that one. It's like a little compiler that teaches people how to use compilers. used Oakcliff, which is a, a framework from Facebook to build it and been, been a fun side project. But yeah, I'm I'm still cutting my teeth on TypeScript. So I'll defer to Chuck on that one. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> so I think that you should try and trust implicit types, right, as best you can. And then... But should you? I mean, I, th- I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think it just kind of depends. Obviously, if you're talking about like from dependencies, you should try and trust those if you can. And obviously... If you run into an issue with that somewhere in your code base and you go and it ties back to the uh, original project, then you should submit a pull request and try again, try and fix that. And then otherwise, obviously, even trusting implicit types from your variables and stuff like that can be pretty nice. So I think that keep it simple is my rule of thumb most of the time until you just can't. So I've been in projects where they heavily depend on GraphQL schema to create the types. And that ends up being like messy all over the place. Gross. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. I think keeping it as simple as possible is good, but you should always double check it. Because that's like, I'll use the inferred type, but I'll like hover over it and make sure it's giving me the 
inferred type I expect because sometimes it'll be like instead of a string it'll be like a string array or like string or null or like something extra weird and I'm like why is it that? Yeah, the or null stuff can get a little rough sometimes. Yeah, the whole job of TypeScript is to make sure you get what you expect, right? So right, if it's not and you're having to like work around it, then something is well awry. I found something that I cannot solve. It's the first thing I could not do at all in TypeScript. And maybe I'm dumb, but like if you write your own decorator and you want to type that, like your decorator function is going to return a thing, you can't. And maybe that's because Ember uses legacy decorators and TypeScript is trying to use the newer stuff. Right. But like no matter what you do, it's like expected your decorator to return any or void. Mm. So I just gave it an any. said, I will do as you command. Here's an any, and uh, <laughs> let's go. Not the any type. And you can do typecasting and stuff like that, but again, that's... You can't, though. I did that, too. I did this whole decorator thing as the thing I actually wanted to be because I thought I was being smart there. And it goes, mm-hmm. we expected this to return void or any. Ooh. I was like, okay, I'm done with you. Right. Well, we should put that out to the audience. Indeed. Someone in the Ember community yeah. should figure out how to meld those things together and fix it. Their version of decor. I mean, that just feels like a problem deep within the inferred types of the Ember decorator versus the, the spec now or whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to go into this, we can, but I don't know how deep you want to go. But like the TLDR is because it's a factory like a decorator factory instead of a function. Mm-hmm. It's like a function that returns a function that returns the thing you want instead of just being a function. So it's like, I don't know, like there's special things in there that TypeScript is trying to be smart about and it just doesn't work the way it should. So I don't know. Mm. Yeah, that, that sounds like one to post on Twitter and see what people think. Yeah, I'm sure the Primogen knows how to fix it. <laughs> Only in Rust. With Rust, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just fix it by rewriting it in Rust. Yeah. That's what he always says. All righty. So we were talking about uh, developer advocacy and the path to get there a little bit already. So, yeah, I always thought that was a very interesting, necessary, but like challenging career move, especially like from someone coming direct from software engineering and having to like turn that into like I think you definitely have to in a way develop a personal brand around that to yeah. start to showcase that yes I can connect with have the communication skills and, and all of that like was that a big part of your journey in uh, in getting that career yeah it was so uh, before I did a coding boot camp I had spent a year doing some digital marketing on the side like contracting out to different companies one of them was a SaaS and that's how I learned about. Uh, how fun coding was and got into that. But the digital marketing really helped because I learned to build up my presence on social, which is really important for developer advocacy, as well as kind of like learning about content plans and content reuse. Those kinds of things came a lot more naturally. Um, It was something that I was doing in my first role at Steps In, which is um, GraphQL. I think they've been acquired by IBM now. But um, yeah. Yeah, good for them. But yeah, so I was in that role. I was both engineering, but also doing a lot of content and a lot of advocating the community, like jumping on live streams and things like that. And so from there, it was a natural move into developer advocacy. But really the motivation behind it all, like knowing things like, oh, like when we talk about SEO, this is what me and that's helpful. But 
the motivation actually comes from back when I was teaching, which is like, I want to help other people learn and make tech accessible. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And that makes a lot of sense because a lot of the content you're putting out right now is is a gateway to introduce developers from all different languages, various platforms and whatnot to take a look at and see how easily it is to set up Kafka. Like right. That's what I found right. in, in, in some of the, the videos that I saw. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely a fun challenge because it there's like in one of the talks, there's a couple of different reasons. Like I think about... I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it's like 30% of people responded to the Stack Overflow survey say like, oh, we dread Kafka. And it's because, you know, there's maybe if you're not used to the like pub sub or publish subscribe pattern, there's an unfamiliar kind of data structure behind it. So uh, going through that, I find is helpful. But then also connecting people into community, like that's another thing that I love doing as a developer app because making connections like, oh, this person's trying to learn um, Python. Well, I have a Python person for you, you know, right. like that's one of my favorite things about it is, is being in the community and introducing people to that. Yeah. yeah. No, that sounds great because I know that uh, there's only one time I've actually had some crossover and experience with Kafka and that was years ago at National Geographic and we were working on an application that that had some real-time PubSub things to it. But it was pretty new at the time and Apache isn't really known for being like noob and introductory friendly. So that's what's been great about your content so far is it's sort of like, oh, if you want to get into this, there's actually ways to a getting started, a basics guide. So I think that your content has been really great around that. But I still sort of have the questions as to, you've shown a lot of the how, and it's sort of like, I have a lot of questions around what is the why. Like, right. when would I look for this tool? When would I reach for this? And how big does my my problem set need exactly. to be without doing things like service workers or something else? Sure. Yeah. So I was thinking about that this morning. Um, and I was like, how am I going to describe this to an audience of web developers? So that well, let's talk about Wordle. Like, let's pretend we're the New York Times. And so we're going to ask from the puzzle team and they want to know what moves people are making, what's the final outcomes, what words are good or bad. And they want a quick turnaround on that so that they can develop new puzzles in case the one for the next day was like bad, according to the analysis, as soon as possible. How are you going to do that when, you know, the events in Wordle are stored in the browser and local storage, right? If you delete your browser history, there goes your Wordle streak, right. um, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, so we, how do you persist that data? And, you know, you, you could use like, a small database, but what if your goal is to like have everybody in the world play Wordle every day? Kafka's really good at handling a truckload of data and it's good at doing that in real time. So that would be a great thing to choose because it's also scalable. Like if you don't have as big a need at first, Kafka has, well, we can get into the structure of it like after this, but things you can store these events or moves of the players in something called a topic that's split up into partitions, which are on different servers in a cluster, which means that you can scale it. Um, any questions uh, after? So when you that? say cluster, most of my familiarity around a cluster is like Kubernetes, right? So a cluster of nodes around that. Is it maybe just like the same architectural ideology or is it actually similar in terms of like you really do have a cluster of multiple servers in that same way? Right. Uh, my impression is that it's multiple servers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, versus like the VM ideology, you're like actually scaling up in physical hardware. Yeah. So you can use it, you know, you can use it on your own servers and and use it that way, but you can also put it up in the cloud. Yeah. So that spark any questions from you, Robbie? 
I don't know. I th- I feel like we could take a step back and just talk about it not technically. Like, mm-hmm. what is it? <laughs> like, you know, to someone who isn't a developer, right? How would you describe it? Right. So it's an event streaming platform, but everything's a platform, right? <laughs> so that's, <laughs> I feel like there's, we need to go into more depth there. So what it really does is that when you're using Kafka, you're using event-driven design, which is different from a design in which, um, so say you were storing those moves in a database and what you might be having your developers do in order to get the information over to the puzzle designers is make a request to an API, which, you know, then uh, uses an object relational model to execute a query in the database. And then that comes back and then you get the result and then you execute some logic based on whatever the result is. So with Kafka, what happens is you have something called a consumer that is subscribed to a topic. And as soon as an event, which in this case would be like a move of a player arrives there, the consumer consumes it immediately. There's no, uh, you don't have to, it's asynchronous. Mm -hmm. So that way, all you have to worry about is like, how are you going to handle the result, the value of the event? Gotcha. Okay. So like, yeah, instead of saying, I've got a database related to a user that are their moves, and then maybe I'm trying to throw that into some like connected data lake or something weird like that. Instead, I'm more curious about the event, and that's the data that I'm going to later on query and see what like results were around moves to today's puzzle all go into this other database or this other place where all of those are stored. Because me, as the puzzle designer, I'm less concerned about who made the moves, but what the moves were and how successful things were or not, right. and scaling up difficulty depending upon how well players are doing. Yeah, and you can you can aggregate and filter those events in Kafka. There's a Kafka Streams API so that instead of having to collect your events on, I'll call it the client side for a better term, but instead of having to collect your events on the other end, you can create an aggregation that's like, okay, show me every time it takes, you know, more than 30% of my player's population if they all like uh, lose the game, like let me know, you know. Right. So, would you say it's probably a service of scale though? Like basically, if if I want to create my own Wordle, I probably don't need Kafka unless I have like a lot of users. Yeah, that's what I would say. Like I don't have Kafka on my personal website. I have. I think I'm just using like an SPA from Facebook. That's it's interestingly enough like a documentation framework. We'll get into that later. But yeah, it's definitely. Something for either at scale or if you do want that event-driven design, it's a good thing to choose for that reason too as well. But yeah, it is uh, the scalability is really a good feature. The other thing is like you can have multiple consumers subscribe to those events and you can also have multiple, uh, they're called producers, but the publishers that write to those topics to the same topic. And that makes it scalable as well because you can add those instances. As you need them. Okay. Yeah, it seems like games are an excellent use case for it. Anything real-time. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, we were looking at it for real-time interaction on an app. Mm-hmm. So it was like, uh, it was this thing called Your Shot, and people would submit photos in, and they would get, like, they could be just randomly on a subject matter, or it could be a contest or whatever else, but like real National Geographic photo editors were would comment and give feedback and stuff like that. But it had a very engaged community too, and there was real-time stuff there. So it handled a lot, of, a lot of messages very quickly in real time. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that, that makes for a great use case. Yeah. 
or makes for a great problem. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, more of like a problem where like this yeah. might have made sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this particular subject matter, though, we can talk a lot about because it's been around for a while, but it's a sort of, I think for like a regular web dev, it's a bit of an, an analogous bit of technology that isn't commonly introduced and yeah. it sort of like does feel like it's this large thing that's enterprise-based that some massive back-end architect brings into play and that may not always be the case. So. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely, if you're looking for real time and you want to make that work in your app, you can definitely use it. It's, uh, it's accessible, I think, a lot through uh, different clients too. It's available to developers in .NET and Python and Node, <laughs> you know, right. um, so that's nice. And it's also, I think one of the things that makes it maybe a little bit more difficult to understand when you're first coming to it, at least it was that way for me, was the wide variety of applications. It's almost like a database. Like you could use that for a lot of things. So Kafka's use cases, they're not just event-driven web apps, which is what we've chosen to talk about today. It's things like mainframe conversions, data pipelines, okay. you know. Yeah. Uh, the first, it was developed to solve this problem at LinkedIn, which was tracking clicks, click streams. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of those I hear. So what would be a competitor? Because it's been around for a while. Yeah, that's a great question. I would need to look more of that up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's definitely, when you're looking at using it, it's an open source piece of software. It's an open source platform. So you can always look at the different companies that are building solutions based on it and determine your solutions there. There's also different pieces of Apache software that are built to deal with different data situations. So if you're thinking about dealing with a ton of data, you definitely like look at all your options and make sure that you've chosen the right one there. But yeah. Okay. Just to follow up on that, I think I wouldn't call it a competitor, but something similar is like just sockets, right? Like socket IO. Mm. It's kind of like pub subby data going back and forth kind of thing. But I think it's that's like the dumbed down version of like, it doesn't really do anything else. It's just like, here you go. Yeah. And each one kind of has a singular function, right? So yeah, you then have to think about a different socket per singular function and, and go from there. But I can see where it's like kind of a intro to Kafka-esque yeah. event management. Yeah. So you work for Confluent. Mm-hmm. Maybe explain a little more about like what is the business model of Confluent and how that ties in. Right. Yeah. We uh, offer Kafka solutions. So one of them is that we can help you get Kafka into the cloud very quickly and easily. <laughs> it's uh, how I do all my demos at cluster in the cloud that I authenticate to. And then I work from there. It's, it's pretty easy to do. It's like in five minutes. So that's one of the, the things that we offer. And there's also all sorts of tools that we develop. Some of them are open source, like uh, CLIs, things like that. And then uh, also my team is the developer experience team, and we're really into teaching people about Kafka in general. So there's a whole portion of our website called Confluent Developer, and it's got a ton of courses. As like an elementary school teacher, like a former teacher, I kind of love it because there's like video courses, but there's also like, if you just want to grab some code, there's templates up there too. And just a bunch of different ways, audiobooks, different ways to learn podcasts. So Yeah, I think that's nice because I think everybody learns a little bit differently. I started originally learning just mm-hmm. through picking up some books and doing a few tutorials. And uh, yeah, video stuff is a little more, it's later for me, but uh, I like books because I'm moving at my own pace. 
Right. Yeah. Videos are kind of annoying because you just like pause. And, yeah, like, and you're like, now let pause. me do this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah. I kind of, I like the video formats when I'm listening to someone explain a broader concept, maybe not something like strictly code related, but like something that I have to understand in order to code well. That's one thing I enjoy like videos and podcasts for that reason. And then when I want to really get down into it, I look for some text or just read the docs. <laughs> right. Sell me on Vim. And now I'll go do a tutorial with Vim. Right. Something like that. Yeah. That's one of uh, Robbie's goals. And you have Vim or just Vim? I'm just trying to use my new keyboard first. And I haven't even gotten through that because I have to get work done. So, <laughs> Is it one of those with a different mapping than usual? or It's got like thumb thingies. I don't know. Thumb clusters. It's the one the Prime Engine uses. It's, Can you just, so like backspace is no longer up in the top right. It's like on your thumb. And then your other thumb on the other side is like enter or vice versa. I don't remember. So it's very confusing because I'm like, oh, let me press all the buttons that I'm used to. And it's like in the wrong spots. Well, that's the other <laughs> part of it. It's nothing is marked. It's all blank keys. No, no, it's marked. Is it? I didn't get the unmarked version. He did post one recently where there's no nothing on it, but he uses Dvorak anyway. So he doesn't care what they say. Yeah, he has a lot of layers of complexity and obviously has been at it yeah. for a while. This is bringing like Don Norman to my mind. You know, uh, he's the person who wrote The Design of Everyday Things. Oh, I know that book. I'm not. I yeah. I, no, he talks about this thing. So it's it's making me wonder like how conventional are keyboards and then how much of it is actually in the way that our hands work, <laughs> you know? Uh, and he has this uh, idea called an object relational mapping. So like if you press you have a car door and you want the window to go down you press down and then if you want it to go up you pull up it's making me wonder what the object relational mapping should be when it comes to spaces and the space bar and then the, the back bars and all that right depends who you ask i think yeah you don't think the folks who invented yeah. the typewriter had it right i know there were some reasons for like selecting that mapping and that was the whole dvorak thing of well it should be well their reasoning and this is what i've heard so i don't know if it's true Someone can look it up if they want. But what I heard is they did it to actually slow you down because the typewriters would get jammed if you type too fast. So like it's an unoptimal format. So Dvorak fixes that and does like puts all the things you would use most in like really close to the home row. So you're just like barely moving. That's what I've heard. I don't know if that's all true, but you haven't approached that yet to test it out. It's going to take me like a year to get used to the keyboard and then... I will switch the keycaps to Dvorak, and then I'll learn Vim. Like, Vim is years off. Okay, fair enough. Well, I mean, that's good, <laughs> like, mapping uh, steps for you. I'm not sure I'd start with that crazy keyboard, but, you know, you do you. I'm starting with that because my wrists hurt a lot, mm. and when I type on that, they don't, so. And then maybe that is the object relational map of <laughs> you're getting older and it starts to hurt. Yeah. I mean, that's why I have a tented keyboard to begin with and that weird, like, stand-up mouse thing and all that because... Yeah, getting old sucks. That's why. Yeah. Or just typing a lot. Yeah. I'm already getting the, like, what do you call that, tennis elbow or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And you got to learn some stretches. And then I, so the tented keyboard does tend to help because it keeps you like this. Even with normal keys, it's actually pretty decent. So yeah. yeah. If you're experiencing some issues, I suggest that. Yeah. I also think this relates also back to developer experience because what we've been talking about is user experience. But what's... And then like an interesting question in my mind recently is what are the conventions in the things that we use, like command line interfaces and things like that, that we should expect and that we should hold, like as we develop developer tools, we should hold them to. 
So for example, like in a command line interface, usually you have one thing that starts the command and it's one verb or word that prefaces every command you're going to have. I think in the Confluence CSLA, it's like Confluent. <laughs> right. But it's also something that it's interesting because of what it takes is like experience with a wide variety of developer tools to know what, how that works. Like when I am creating a process for users to authenticate to my API, how should I set that up? Should I like uh, there, you definitely run into like some quirky APIs where that authenticating process is really difficult. <laughs> right. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. And it's not documented well. Yeah. Well, and there you go. So that is, that's kind of an interesting topic that I didn't really think about in general that we could uh, approach because developer experience is sort of a hot word. Well, words, DX is what I was thinking. So the acronym, but that's letters, not even a word. <laughs> it's not even a word. <laughs> but it's not even an acronym because experience starts with an E. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> it is a wide net. Like there's a large net cast there about a lot of different things. And it's interesting that you think about it from a tool like hardware tools perspective you can think about it from like a cli emergent patterns there that we're used to that like that's a thing documentation is part of the developer experience because like in general the intent is how can you maximize productivity ease knowledge gain and then in turn like solve the problem in the end and it's like all of these things are a part of that right it's like how can i find information on the api how can i spin up a sandbox in order to test some ideas that i have how can i get my work to production and what is that process and that is part of the developer experience it's like all of these things all together and it's interesting that like that it's all considered like kind of the same thing and i think it's all being kind of figured out like you have these ideas around developer advocacy, developer experience, teams, platform teams that are put in place to improve developer experience for product teams, things like that. Like that's all part of that yeah. similar thing. So I hadn't really considered it from like the basis of just the hardware you're using, like what's the keyboard, what's the keyboard layout that's the most idea. That's ideal for the work we do. And and then, yeah, when, I, when I'm going into a CLI, there's certain things I can assume and know without even getting into a documentation until someone does it differently. Right. Yeah. And it's really, I think the common theme between like user experience and developer experience is the empathy that you need to have for the person who's going to use the end product. Yeah. Right. That's something that I've been working on recently and my teammates have been really good about reminding me, like I've been writing some demos recently in order to get like there's AAS data, which is, I don't know if either of you, I was not familiar with it before I started the project, but it's like live data that boats send out. Oh, yeah, um, no idea. Yeah, and then they send it out to a port and you can pipe that into Kafka and do fun things, analyses on it there. But I was writing this demo and my teammate was reviewing it and goes, oh, so yeah, how would you do this on Windows? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, and we're also naturally, like, I'm naturally self-centered. I'm just thinking everybody's using my machine. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, the browser wars are over and in general, you can write more ubiquitous code that runs everywhere for the most part. But then, yeah, there's times where you have to think about speed because is your audience worldwide? 
not everybody has the internet connection we have. Not everybody right. uses the primary device we have. Mm -hmm. I've had times where you have to like, oh yeah, other developers aren't on a Mac or a Linux machine and now it doesn't run on their Windows machine, well, their version of. But I think that's been improved too, right? With the recent Windows? That has been fixed because you can install a Linux subsystem on Windows so you don't have to use command line or command prompt. I guess, yeah. whatever they call it. It's like you can use the, the thing that, that uses all the wrong key commands. Right. <laughs> right. And not everybody's at the same knowledge level either, which yeah. is like, I used to be when I was just beginning learning how to code, I used to be a lot better about spelling out all my acronyms. Now, you know, I'll need a reminder, like CLI, you should spell out command line interface, right? Because someone might be using that for the first time. Right. At least like somewhere early on. As long as you don't say CLI. <laughs> <laughs> Some <laughs> people do that. Yeah. Have you heard anyone do that? <laughs> I have. I actually, I haven't. I'm sure I will, but. That was a thing in the Ember community, the Ember and Cly. Yeah, gross. There's a few things like that. But like a, a tongue-in-cheek referral? No, I just think that somebody who talks a lot started calling it that and everybody globbed onto it. Oh. I don't remember who it was, but I remember hearing that sometimes. Yeah, I feel like yeah. the tech community is a very, like in language discourses in general, you have the people who are like the grammar People who are like, it, you have to go by the rules. And then you have the people who are like, well, it's the use that determines the rules. So mm. we should go by the use. And I feel like the tech community is very like, oh, yeah, we'll go by whatever people are using. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We get a little lazy. I think that's what it is. I like to speak in emojis and uh, GIFs. So, yeah, it's all you need. What do you think? Yeah. GIF or GIF, by the way? I used to say GIF. Mm. I say GIF now because... Too many people have, <laughs> have jumped on me. I say GIF because it's correct and you heard it here first. <laughs> like, I think both then say GIF, right? You say GIF too, Chuck? Yeah, I say GIF. So you do it wrong. It's not Jiffy. You're going to the Jiffy Yes, side? it is. Jiffy? Yes, because it's the play on words. It's, it's quick and it's like an image and it's like the whole, like they have their like thing that's their, Get off my lawn. not a logo, but it's like a, they did like the GIF peanut butter thing or whatever. Like it's GIF, but they say it's GIF. So. Choosy devs choose GIF. Is that what it is? You know, remember the old commercials? Choosy moms choose GIF. Yeah. Yeah. We'll never all agree on it. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. There's so many of those things, but see, improving the developer experience is having the same language, I think. So we should figure that out. Well, yeah. Yeah, maybe just put a little guide on the documentation like you have in the dictionary and how to pronounce it. <laughs> so I can't wait to get the next gift that you send me. Okay, so I'm going to go way, <laughs> way back here. And the reason I pronounced it GIF is because I used to be like a literacy coach. Mm. And the rule in English is like, if you have an I right after a G, you said say GIF, like giraffe. But <laughs> GIF doesn't yeah. yeah, Chuck. Ooh, is it a giraffe? <laughs> yes, isn't it? I love giraffes. So cute. They'll, they'll lick you. It's nice. Giraffes. I don't know. The English giraffe is QL. very difficult. Yeah, I mean, there's rules, but that's like, there's probably 12 exceptions for everyone. So is it a rule? Right. Like um, there are these rules and then there's like somebody that comes in and completely breaks it and they're like, but this is why it's fine. Yeah, I feel like... Almost coding languages are almost easier than spoken languages that way because if you do something that's not going to work, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, you can see it right away. It's like, oh, here's my, well, at least the ones that have that check at compile time. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There's some nice ones there with like error checking and what and whatnot. Yeah. So you've used a, a few different languages now uh, yeah. in creating some of these tutorials. I, I saw Python and JavaScript. What else have you? Yeah. So I didn't create the Python one. 
the tutorials that I have created all on my own are mostly command line interface based. But yeah, I've done a couple node projects and I actually believe in trying out with a new concept. I have to pick my third language for Kafka because I like trying out the new concept in three different languages. Like I did like API tutorials in JavaScript, Golang and Python. And then I was like, I feel like I know what an API is better now because I can pick out the commonalities a little bit better when you do things at least three different times (laughs) in three different ways, right? Or at least use different clients. Yeah, I've used JavaScript the most and then probably Python after that. And I've like played around with Golang. Go is nice. Go is nice. Yes. I think I would recommend probably Python to be like absolute beginners to coding just because of the like human readability of the language. (laughs) Like it's always, and then it's also like a little less prone to... That's fighting words. Yeah, the errors that JavaScript has because you have to add TypeScript to get type checking. He, he needs brackets to understand any... I have to have brackets because I agree that Python is a good language. However, if it had brackets, it would be amazing because the best part about brackets is you don't have to ever hit the space bar or return or anything. You just put the brackets in and then go auto-format, boom. The debate is gone. Like, it just formats to the right spacing. So I don't want to have to hit space all the time like Mm -hmm. you have to do in Python. That's my complaint. The human readability of Python is really (laughs) nice, though. It's been a pretty long time since I touched any of it. But at that time, I was writing CoffeeScript and Python, and they felt kind of similar, and neither had brackets, too. Yeah. And so it was just like... They were very similar, yeah. Yeah, easy context changes there. So I enjoyed that. I only touched a little bit of Golang when I was uh, at Acquia just because some of my teams were using it for microservices. And it was like, oh, let's see what's going on here. And that looked pretty nice. But I just hear about Rust all the time, and I feel like it's my next thing to check out. Why is that? Because people won't shut up about not trying it. So gotcha. Eventually gotcha. the peer That's, pressure has, <laughs> There's has no, like, I need to do me. this project in Rust and there's the requirements. Uh, like, no, I mean, I, I tried a project in Elixir and I thought that was interesting, but it didn't blow me away. People really tend to enjoy that, but I was like writing an API in Elixir and it felt like it was a lot of work from an authentication standpoint. And then I switched that API to serverless in TypeScript and it was like, boom, 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 and I'm done. So it was just that use case didn't work great for me. But I'm very interested in uh, WebAssembly and Rust is obviously like closely tied to that, even though you can write web components in, in JavaScript and compile to WebAssembly. But I don't know, it just feels like a little more natural. So, And you can write yeah. some CLI stuff in it. I don't know. Yeah. Everything. Yeah, a lot of CLIs and terminals and, and different stuff are written in Rust. But technically Elixir is the, if you go by the surveys, like the number one everyone loves it thing. Now, they don't talk about it online. I mean, like the percentage of people that try it love it the most. Yeah, like retention. Like the, the people are still satisfied with it after using it for a year or two or whatever. It's like the highest. But they're not loud about it. Whereas all the Rust fanboys are like really loud about it. They're like, hey, did you know I use Rust? Because Rust is the best. You should try Rust. Have you tried Rust yet? Like yeah. no one's doing that about Elixir. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, right. I'm pretty resistant to that. Like I only tried chat GPT, like, well, I tried it when it came out to, for, for fun, like writing poems, but I only tried it for coding like last week. You know, I kind of like look to the people who've been in tech for like 10 more years than I have and kind of watch what they do usually. And I end up making some okay decisions that way when it comes to like the hype cycles. But that's reasonable, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've been in tech now almost 20 years and 
just ignore what I do, I would say. <laughs> just if you do the opposite, it's probably going to work out. Yeah. Don't follow my tech career and don't follow financial advice from Robbie and you'll, you'll do just fine. Don't follow any advice from me, really. Same <laughs> <laughs> hats. I just realized we're wearing the same hat. Yeah. We do that a lot. At least we're not wearing the same shirt. Yeah. Well, we do own some of the same shirts. We definitely own all of the I same I feel like hats. that happens when you're in tech, though, because of swag. Yeah, I'm less about the swag other than some of our own stuff. Just, But uh, I, I used to have like drawers full of, of swag tees. Oh, yeah. And then there was a certain point where I just wanted to stop wearing logos. So I just moved to a lot right. of plain stuff. Kind of like, what's my personal style besides? Yeah, yeah besides this free t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, how many workout t-shirts do I need? Turns out, not working out enough lately. So none. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other topic. I don't know if we want to go into that. We could. We can go into a little bit of whatnot around these things. What is your What are your goals and, I don't know, around fitness? Well, I was just uh, going to say in general that I haven't done anything, working out or not, yeah. for the past like four or five weeks. Because oh. my life has just been destroyed. Hmm. But uh, I had planned on starting some workouts and doing some things and uh, that didn't happen. Oh. Being an adult and working out is is hard. Yeah. I enjoy my workouts a lot. Like I like to do like light weights and Pilates and all that. But yeah. What I decided is that something was always better than nothing. So like, what is it? Like, oh, yeah. Don't let the perfect. Be the enemy of the good. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's just like, if I have 10 minutes to go on a walk, I should do that. Yeah. If you do five push-ups, that's better than zero. Exactly. Yeah, I like to use like, you know, those awkward like in between meeting times. Mm-hmm. Like I'll get like 30 minutes working out done if I just spend those on exercising at home, you know? Yeah. I think you have to like it though. Some people are like, I'm not motivated at all. If I don't go into a gym, I'm like, I hate being yeah. <laughs> in gyms. <laughs> so I, I, it depends. Yeah, I basically furthered my uh, hermit status by <laughs> during the pandemic because you used to go to a gym. And that was kind of like, so people watch and some social interaction here and there. Okay, came out of there, set up a home gym like many people did. And then I never, never went, went back. I, I never going back. Why would I pay you monthly right. to do the few things? And like you mentioned, uh, body weight stuff and whatever. I have that everywhere I'm at. This is perfect. It's kind of easier. Yeah. And the bands are good for traveling if you're like going to conferences and stuff. And they're also just good in general because you get the constant tension. But Right. So there you go, Robbie. Just just try something. Uh, I also did one other thing. I have an accountability challenge with my brothers for Labor Day. Mm. So we're putting money into a pot and having a competition. What's the goal, though? Like, it's a, a body fat losing the most weight or lifting the most weight, fat, lowest body fat percentage. Oh, that that seems skewed. Seems hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the abs challenge. Plus, that in September is my wife's 40th birthday. So it's also a gift for her. Mm. Yeah. My goal is so I've been continuing to, like, while you're pregnant, you can't really up your fitness level. You can only maintain, but my goal is to maintain it because the last time I had a kid, I only did like yoga, like yin yoga during it. And I couldn't like lift a gallon of milk afterwards. And I just don't want to be there again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's reasonable. Yeah, you would think that like the hormones would help with that or something because you're going to have to lift the child, but like they don't. Yeah, so there's a specific <laughs> one called Relaxin that relaxes your joints. And uh, so it makes it easier to do yoga, but you have to be like really careful about your range of motion otherwise mm. because you could get injured. So, oh, yeah. Mm. I love that it's called Relaxin. The more you know. 
<laughs> I know. It's like everybody who's pregnant should be relaxed, right? Wrong. Yeah. But <laughs> right. Yeah. I haven't had the child, but I have observed that. You must be relaxed. Mm-hmm. That's how that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. There's not much relaxing through most of the process. <laughs> Second trimester is good. There's, there's some relaxing there, but first and third are bad. Yeah. Mm. So that brings us to, so outside of yoga and creating humans, do you have any other hobbies? <laughs> I read a lot. I think I read something like 70 books last year. Um, and then I also Whoa. like to code on the side because uh, when you're a developer advocate, you're doing a lot of content creation and that's about coding. But sometimes you're like, actually, I haven't like debugged anything this week. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I like to go and create my own tutorials or templates. I kind of like to use things as ways to teach things. Like uh, I earlier mentioned, um, there's that, the command line interface that teaches you how to use command line interfaces, right? You you navigate through it and it defines args and flags for you and things like that. But also like I have a Git cherry pick tutorial on GitHub and that's just something like you're actually going to do it, <laughs> right? As you go through it. And that's something that I really enjoy, like just taking that perspective and kind of ramping up beginners really fast. They gain confidence using the actual thing instead of telling them what it's all about and then being like, go, here's like, you know, the empty darkness of the terminal. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. And cherry pick is a hard one. So, oh yeah. Uh, it yeah. It gets to be a little scary at times. I had a, a, a client recently where they essentially had three main branches and they were very much tied to the environments they were in. And so it was kind of disparate histories to a degree. So it was all very bad practice, by the way. I'm not recommending this. But the way that you essentially would take promote features, and this is why squashing and merging was very important for them because they needed like the thing attached to that ticket is specifically what we're going to promote over here. And we're going to promote it with a cherry pick in. Oh, wow. So it was like part of the regular mm-hmm. process. Yep. Oh, Interesting. Yes. Yeah, because what I, yeah, because I, I don't know if I could like remember all of the steps right now off the top of my head, right? And that's why I wrote it. It's like, it's for the people who want to try it out first before they go and do it. Because often you're in a situation where like something's on fire and you have to get cherry picked. Yeah. I think every time you cherry pick, it's usually because something bad happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hot <laughs> fix and it better be a real one because otherwise you don't want to do this. Yeah. Yeah. If you pick the wrong commit, then everything is, is that much worse. Yeah. Skew. So you don't play video games. You read a lot of books. So I finished a show recently that is related to a book. So maybe you have read it or not. I'm not sure if you're reading fiction, nonfiction or. Both. I yeah. read like Consume newspapers, anything, ads. Like when I was a kid, I used to sit down and literally read the dictionary. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Daisy Jones and the Six. Have you read that? Okay. I have not. Okay. This is funny because I've actually just seen the first episode. I've um, not read it. So, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think the show is incredible. I did not read the book. My wife did read the book. And so she knew the nuance the other. I didn't know it was a book. Yeah, it was a book first. And it's actually not even that old of a book. I think it was released in 2019. They optioned it almost right away. It was a Reese Witherspoon thing. And then they had all of the pandemic to learn how to sing and play these instruments for real and then like get into production afterwards or into it at least. So they actually released an album out, like a full-on album with all the songs that were written for this book because they didn't do the same songs that were in the book. They kind of like did their own thing. And so there's a full-on album out there. 
And the fun fact I learned recently is Daisy Jones, the actress who plays her, or I guess now you're supposed to say actor for everybody, right? It's not. So. I don't know. I mess up all these things. But uh, is it's Elvis Presley's granddaughter. Oh, so no Lisa way. Marie's daughter. Too. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, another little add-on huh. to that. So, so and the, the whole story. So she can probably sing then. Yeah, yeah, she's decent. And the whole story is kind of loosely based on Fleetwood Mac and then pulling in a little bit of some other, like, influences there. So, like, the tension that was involved during, like, Around Rumors and all of that, like, very cool. Hmm. Oh, that's neat. It makes me want to go back and watch the second episode or maybe just read the book. Yeah. See, I can't yeah. read the book first because I already have my own ideas of what it should be. And then if I'm visually right. disappointed or expecting something that they didn't put it in or whatever else, kind of ruins it for me. So I always do it the other way. I find the books to be supplemental. But how can you do that? Because it ruins it the other way for you. Because then like, you see only what was in the show versus like imagining it from the book like i never know what to do so i'm just paralyzed like do i watch the movie do i like read the book like i don't know <laughs> play the video game i don't know yeah video game that's the best option one of those yeah just play the game <laughs> <laughs> anyway i recommend it that's the show i finished recently glad you started it recommend it to you robbie since you're not going to work out you've got extra time yeah <laughs> wow this is what we do a little bit it's banter I don't know. I don't have any other whatnot things. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. I'm just uh, just hanging on here. All right. <laughs> well, then let's wrap it up. All right. Cool. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Leave us some ratings and reviews. We appreciate it. And we will catch you next time. Boom, 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 boom. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.